Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diadem Silongkumar, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Professor Mark Jokenmeyer to talk about his book, When God Stops Fighting, How Religious Violence Ends. I think this is a very interesting book because it talks about religion and violence and how religious violence ends. And Professor Mark is someone who has been working on this area for a very long time. So I think it will be a really fascinating conversation, and I, I hope that listeners will clean a lot from this very conversation. So, going straight away to Professor Mark, can you tell us something about yourself? Well, uh, what can I tell you? I'm an American, I uh, German immigrant background, and I've always been in both interested in both religion and politics. My father was very deeply into um, politics. My mother was deeply religious, a Protestant Christian. Uh, and so she earnestly hoped that I would become a minister. And I actually studied in seminary for a while uh, and decided I really liked studying religion more than preaching it. <laughs> so uh, then I switched to uh, political science to look at the interaction of religion and politics. And that's been my career for most of my academic life uh, and on a number of subjects, but it turned to the subject of religious nationalism and the rise of religious violence about 30 years ago. Uh, interestingly, the case that I first looked at was in India with the Sikhs. Uh, and even though my work since then has been global, I've looked around the world. I've you know, most recently looked at ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, uh, these various groups, including Christian nationalism in the United States, which has become very angry and, of course, was a, played a role in the January 6th riots. Uh, but my own interest, as I said, started in India with the Sikhs. Why there? Well, <laughs> I had lived in that part of the world for a while. I taught at Punjab University shortly after I got out of graduate school. And so when the rise of, of kind of religious nationalism under the banner of Khalistan emerged in the 1980s under the leadership of San Janao Singh Pindamali, uh, I wanted to know why. I mean, these could have been my students. These could have been uh, the, the kids that I had in my classroom, and, and maybe some of them were, uh, although by that time they were about the same age as the kids that I had in my classroom. Uh, young Jot Sikhs from the rural areas who were angry about being left over, uh, this so-called economic shift within the Punjab had become more urban. Uh, the government was using uh, subsidies for agriculture as a kind of a political leverage, uh, and they were increasingly felt marginalized. I mean, after all, this was the community, Jat Sikhs, that were had been dominant in the Punjab. Uh, but now they felt increasingly marginalized. So you could see the economic and social background to what became a movement with religious overtones. And so I began looking at why that happened. I looked at the sermons of Bindramali, and uh, what I discovered was that th there was a sense of a, a clash between their vision of uh, a kind of religion-based politics or, or socially-based, culturally-based politics and the secular nation-state. And this was emerging around the world. And so I developed a general thesis which applied to the Middle East, to the uh, United States, to Europe with the rise of religious nationalism uh, that focused on the, uh, the inability of secular nationalism really to, uh, to meet the demands of an increasingly um, globalized world where people were trying to identify, to find meaning in their cultural roots. And most of this left to... This leads to kind of ethnic cleansing and, and uh, uh, you know, othering of demanding that we all be the same dominant religion. You can see that today in American politics. You can see that in Indian politics. Uh, it's a global phenomenon. 
Very interesting background. Now, you have previously obviously written some works on this area. So now coming to this book, why uh, why this book? Uh, even though you have previously written on the global phenomena of uh, you know religious violence and all of those things. So what's something new that you're bringing in, in this book? Yeah. Well, this was the logical conclusion to a series of books that I've written, beginning with the ones in 1990 about the Khalistan movement and other movements like it around the world. Um, so I've been looking at how these movements begin, how they arise and why they arise, and, and how they flourish and the role of violence within them, which was the subject of probably my largest selling book, Terror in the Mind of God, uh, which came out right before 9-11 and had you know, I had interviewed members of Al-Qaeda who were involved in the bombing of the World Trade Center, the earlier bombing. Uh, and so for a while, I was kind of a go-to person and by media and others to try to understand the motives behind these movements. So that had been my focus. So at this point in my academic career, it seems sensible to look at how these movements end. Because virtually all movements end. <laughs> you know, they don't last forever. Uh, particularly those that arrive angrily out of a social situation uh, that kind of, you know, boil up like a summer storm. Uh, and there's a lot of noise and thunder and, and lightning and torrential rain, and then it subsides. You know, it doesn't last forever. And so I wanted to know why, how that happens. Uh, and I wanted to know how that happens not only from the outside, what were the external factors that led to the diminishment of these movements, but also from the inside? Why did their faith in this move, this, these beliefs in this movement, why did their vision of a great cosmic war, a battle between good and evil and right and wrong and religion and irreligion that had motivated many of these movements, and it sparked the enthusiasm, how did that die away? And so to understand that, I had to go and talk with people, which is my main, my main method of trying to understand these movements. It's the oldest old sociological trick in the world. If you want to know why people do things, go and ask them. You know, it's pretty straightforward. And, and usually they'll tell you. And they may tell you in words that try to you know, appeal to you in some way, but even that is interesting. You know, it tells you something about how they would like their motives to be framed. And so for this, um, for this study, I wanted to understand how they diminished. Now, most of my books have been pretty comprehensive in that I've gone to every region of the world and I've tried to study every movement of religious violence and religious nationalism that has emerged from Europe to the United States to <clears throat> Israel and Palestine and the Middle East and Egypt and Iran and, and India and and the Philippines and, and Japan, and, and you know, it, it's been a, a, a kind of global phenomenon, the rise of religion-related violence. And when I say religion-related, I don't mean that religion causes this violence. Um, I've used the phrase religious violence or religious nationalism, and sometimes my critics have said, oh, you think religion causes violence. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, that's, that, it's not a, that's not the role that religion plays, it's, it's that religion is a factor and it's often used as a justification or as a, a kind of um, metaphor uh, for a struggle that enhances the power of those people who are leading it. Uh, and, but it's not, you know, people don't read a, a sacred text and say, oh, those are hypocrites, let's go and kill them. That, that's a, it doesn't happen like that. So, uh, but I, I want to know how these movements that are some way linked with religious images and 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 motivations how they can how, how they can disappear. So I chose three case studies, and so for a number of years, with uh, funding from uh, a university in Sweden who had, had a project on how movements like this end, uh, I I went to every year I went to. Uh, for at least five years, went to these three locations. And the three locations were ISIS in Iraq, uh, and ISIS by that time was beginning to disappear. And during my study, the last battle in Mosul occurred, and, and uh, the movement was defeated on the battleground, at least, even though there are remnants of it that remain. 
In fact, all three of these cases, there are remnants that remain. They haven't entirely dissipated. Uh, a second was the moral movements in the Philippines, in, in Mindanao, in southern Philippines, which I had not studied before, and I found very interesting in part because it seemed to be the most successful in the sense of actually achieving uh, from the government a, an autonomous state within the framework of the Philippines government, but nonetheless, it gave them at least partly partly something what they wanted. You know, they wanted their own state, and, uh, and now they have it. There's a Muslim Mindanao, including some of the people with whom I talked, because all of this was happening while I was doing the study. And the third movement I looked at was I went back to the Punjab uh, in India, in part because I love the Punjab. <laughs> I have a lot of old friends there. It's the one language that I can speak not very well, you know, Indian Punjabi. Uh, but, uh, but also because it's been now 30 years since the ending of the movement. And so I thought this was the time to talk with some of the old militants and try to figure out why, what happened from their point of view. And I was really surprised. I expected all of the old leaders would be killed off. But when I was talking with the, a friend of mine, uh, Jagrup Singh Sekhan, who's the chair of the political science department at Guru Nanak Dev University in Amritsar, he, at one point he said, no, do you want to go and meet Zafferwal? I said, what? <laughs> Wasn't saying Zafferwal was the leader of the most militant movement of the Khalistan commando force during, during the whole uprising of the 80s. I said, he's still alive? And he said, oh, yes. He just he lives up in a farm near Batala. Uh, we can drive there and see him. I want to take, you know, an hour or so. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so we went and we saw Zephyrwall, among others. So I, I had a chance to talk with a number of old militants, uh, including a number, some of the foot soldiers as well as the leaders, because I was interested in both perspectives. Uh, and so that, that was the... That was the third uh, case study. So with these three case studies, I was able to put together some insights on how movements like this come to an end. That's what the book is about. It's called uh, When God Stops Fighting. Uh, and it's kind of plays on the same theme that I've used before, the terror in the mind of God and uh, uh, my other books that, that have God in the title as a kind of metaphor for religious-related uh, nationalism and religious-related politics. And this is when God stops fighting. Yeah, this is a very pertinent question that you pursue in this book. And before coming to the three examples that you take up in the book, obviously you have alluded to this one, but I want to kind of press uh, you more on this one and ask this question where some people argue that, okay, religion is inherently violent. And then some people argue that, no, it is not. And people who are violent by using the name of religion, then they are going against the teachings of, teachings of the religion and all of those. So different arguments are there. So how do you see, you also alluded to this one before, but how do you see this aspect of religion and violence here? Religion is not inherently anything. <laughs> Religion is a human activity, and you may say it's in divinely inspired, it's a response to divine presence or divine inspiration, or if you don't believe that, you can say, well, it's simply a human invention. But either way, it is a human invention. Uh, it, it's the way we try to think about the absolute and try to... Um, try to frame it in a way that is relevant to our, our lives. Uh, so that means it can be applied to pretty much anything. Uh, and in general, religious language and metaphors are, are linked with some of the highest aspirations of the human condition. Uh, we long for peace. We long for happiness. We long for a kind of inner sense of solace and uh, comfort. Uh, particularly at times of crisis. We want to imagine that the great difficulties in life, including the most difficult one at all, our own deaths, uh, are, can somehow be overcome in a way that, that gives meaning to the life that we presently live. All of these are part of the religious imagination. And, and so in general, it's a, it's a very good thing. Uh, but we can also link it with images of 
of destruction, and it can be used to enhance a, a, a struggle in which we are engaged if we imagine it to somehow not just be our war, but God's war. Uh, and so this is how religion becomes used for a situation of conflict, uh, which is uh, unfortunate, but that's what we humans do. <laughs> We're, it's, it's a human activity, and there's no... I mean, we, we like, like blaming, I don't know, art, uh, you know, for... Uh, you know, creating <laughs> ideas of destruction. Oh, the reason why those Hindus were so angry in the Gujarat massacre is that they saw pictures of Kali, you know, with bloodthirsty with a sword. That was it. No, of course that's not it. <laughs> you know, nothing to do it. It was a you know an ethnic fight that was socially motivated. Uh, and yeah, they may have, you know, the Shiv Sena may have come in and tried to use uh, images from religion to uh, to animate their 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 struggle, but it was not it's not caused by religion uh, any more than uh, the yeah the or the, the destruction of the Ayodhya Mosque was not caused by religion. It was caused by a sense of ethnic conflict. So, you know, these things happen. <laughs> because religion becomes um, associated with ethnic identities. And when that becomes the case, then it, it, it appears that you're, you're struggling for religion. You're really struggling for your ethnic identity. I mean, the case of ISIS is a really clear one. Uh, ISIS in Iraq and, and Syria is often portrayed as a religious movement, as an angry religious movement. And it's true that the leaders, the inner circle, certainly were very steeped in religious imagery and religious language, and they justified their activities in, in terms of uh, traditional uh, archaic uh, Islamic practices. Uh, but that's that's not what motivated. If you go and talk with the people who are in the movement, which I have, I've talked with large numbers of them, are refugee camps in in uh, in in, uh, in Kurdistan, in in, in prison uh, in Kurdistan. Those who are actually militants fighting with uh, the first thing they'll tell you is that they had to defend themselves against those Shia. That we Sunni Muslims needed to band together because the Shia were treating us like dirt. Well, yeah, those are religious terms, but they're talking about two different ethnic communities. You know, the Shia Arabs, Muslim Arabs, and the Sunni Muslim Arabs. But they're, you would say, well, they're both Arabs and they're both Muslims. Yeah. <laughs> but in their minds, there's a huge an ethnic division between the two. And in fact, <clears throat> the politics of Iraq after the fall of Hussein uh, was... Uh, has been pretty much defined around religious communities and religious organizations. And so Shia politics do dominate. That's because the Shia are 60% of the Iraqi country. And the Sunni Arabs are only 20%, but the Kurds maintain the other 20%. Now, the Sunni Arabs are, are maybe all only 20% of the whole of Iraq, but in Al-Anbar province, the western part of, of, uh, of Iraq, they are the majority. They're all, you know, places uh, in, in those regions are all are pretty much all Sunni. So they feel that they've been marginalized. They're just treated like second class citizens, which to some extent is true uh, because of the way in which the Shia politicians of Baghdad have privileged their own people and have ruled through, uh, you know, giving political rewards to their faithful and to their supporters. Uh, so all of this makes a great deal of sense, why they would see ISIS as a movement for Sunni empowerment. And, and if you understand it that way, everything begins to make sense. I mean, why else would a huge population support what appears to be a wacky, weird, and cruel uh, little religious regi regime like ISIS? Well, they don't see them that way. They see them as a movement that's going to somehow support Sunni Arabs. So then the question is, was ISIS a religious movement? No. Yeah, but it's certainly not in a narrow sense, you know. But religion is related to it in some way. And, and that's what interests me as a sociologist of religion, to understand that relationship.
and not that it causes it, but uh, that it's related and how is it related and what way and how does it happen and how does it end, which is what this yeah, book is about. Uh, thank you for that. I think that's a very uh, good distinction to understand religion and violence. Now, coming to the another aspect where you make a conceptual distinction between imagined war and absolute war. Can you explain further on these two distinctions that you make? Here, I'm, I'm, I explored this early in an earlier book, a book called God at War, which came out uh, a year or so before this book. I mean, to tell you the truth, actually, they were supposed to be part of the same book. And I started working on it. And the whole the war theme, trying to uh, try to understand the image of war. What is that? <laughs> you know? And why is it so powerful in the human imagination? Uh, and, you know, the usual answer is, oh, well, people want to go to war. They want to, you know, it, it, it's it's like that old saying, um, war is simply politics by other means. Well, the, the guy who wrote that didn't mean that at all. He, he said, yes, that's what the way it often turns out. But there's war in the mind before there's war on the fingers of a gun. And it's war in the mind that fascinated him and that fascinates me because it's so bizarre if you stop to think about it. I mean, we live in a rational world where we all understand that in the civil order, the way to resolve difficulties is to try to come to compromise or some understanding and to try to negotiate uh, and maybe take it into a, a court of law uh, to resolve differences. Uh, that's, that's the way we deal with problems in ordinary life. And war turns out upside down. Because in, in the case of war, then that's not what we're trying to do at all. We're simply trying to destroy the other side. We've come to the conclusion or come to the understanding or the image that we have is of an enemy that cannot be negotiated with, cannot understand, that is dead set to destroy us. It becomes a defensive, a kind of primal defensive measure in order to preserve life, culture, everything that we know, our, our existence. And the, the basic idea of war is absolute war. It's the notion that there's just no redeeming qualities left to the enemy, and they have to be destroyed. There's nothing in between. And you, make, you take no pity, you take no sorrow, uh, you, you just you have to kill them. And the, the image the, the, that comes to mind in the present politics is Ukraine. Because if you look at, at the situation in Ukraine, it, it's, it's really very dramatic from Putin's point of view. Uh, the, the Ukrainians are simply wayward. It's a wayward, uh, uh, wayward unit of Russia. Now, if they believe that, you would think there would be ways of trying to negotiate and to come to some sort of terms. But it, 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 I guess he's come to the point where he imagines that the Ukrainians will just are will never come around to his point of view. We'll never see him that way, and, he, and that's intolerable. Uh, and, and it's not just intolerable to him personally, although there's certainly that, his sense of power, his certain sense of trying to trying to restore the glories of the Soviet Union, uh, but also it, it, it's, it's destructive to the whole of Russian civilization. And for that, he has the support of the Archbishop of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, and so the two of them are kind of conjured up this notion of cosmic war, of, of religious warfare, where... They are not, not just, Putin has said this on many occasions, and so has the Archbishop, that they are not, the Patriarch, rather, of Moscow, that they are, they are not just in, engaged in a war over territory, they're war for Russian civilization itself. And so it's, a, a, you know, they've, it's existential war. You know, they've laid everything on the line, that it's the very existence of Russians as a people and Russians as a, and Orthodox Russia as a civilization is bound up in this struggle. So if that's the case, then the Ukrainians are just expandable. I mean, you know, they just, sorry, they're there. And if there's deaths, I mean, the uh, New York Times has had a story yesterday about the way in which these soldiers are now being recruited from prison. You know, convicts are saying, oh, we'll let you out of prison if you go and find my war. Well, it turns out they're just using these as, as human cannon fodder. 
They're just sending waves and waves of soldiers in front of the Ukrainian lines, knowing they're, most of them will be shot down, uh, just as a way of, for one thing, trying to figure out where the shots are coming from so they can, they can shoot back. You know, they're just using the, the soldiers as targets. And, and Putin obviously shows no remorse for this whatsoever. You know, this is, well, you know, they're in a struggle that's larger than life itself. That's absolute war. That's uh, that's not the kind of of ordinary warfare that most governments are engaged in, which is a modified form of absolute war. It's it's politics by other means, um, but uh, in, in the case of Ukraine, it's on both sides. It's a struggle for their existence, and that's. And that image is behind a lot of the acts of religious violence. And that's one of the things that religion supplies uh, because every religious tradition has warfare as a part of its imagery. Whether it's, you know, the great wars of the Hebrew Bible and Deuteronomy that's been Christianity and Islam and Judaism uh, are the Ramayana and the Ramayana and, and the Mahabharata and the Hindu tradition. Uh, even in Buddhism and, you know, in Sri Lanka, you have the great... Uh, battles in, in Sri Lankan uh, history between the Hindu and Buddhist kings. So the, these images of warfare from legend and from scripture uh, are can be appropriated uh, in the way Bindrindali used it in the Sikh battles against the Mughals in, in his own uh, kind of struggles with the Indian government, identifying uh, Indira Gandhi as, you know, one of those mobile leaders in Delhi. <laughs> it somehow implanted on her images from the history of Sikh warfare in order to kind of magnify the struggle that they were having with secular nationalism. So that's that's the role of cosmic war, absolute war, in the way in which it figures in an earthly conflict in recent and present, in the present yeah. days. Thank you for clearly articulating this uh, very aspect of image and absolute war. And I think this is not only conceptual, but also at the same time, it's historically and also at the same time, at present moment, this is something which is very relevant to our times. Yeah. So that is something which is very important. Now, coming to the heart of the book that you are discussing, you have given three examples. So let's uh, go one by one. So the, the first example that you bring out is the Islamic State of the Iraq and Syria. And so take us in short to, to the journey of how this war ends. Yeah. Yeah, as I just said, is a war for Sunni empowerment, at least in the minds of most people. And strikingly, this was also the case among uh, the most militant ISIS fighters that I was able to uh, to talk with in prison. Uh, and by the way, that wasn't easy. <laughs> trying to trying to break into prison is sometimes as difficult as breaking out of prison. <laughs> uh, but in that part of the world it's kind of who you know and you have friends who know friends and anyway I was able to I was make able to make those uh, those connections uh, and particularly for the true believers people who had and one guy was telling me how his own support for ISIS which is initially just for suiting empowerment to try to get even with those Shia he began in part when he was in prison and, and this uh, kind of blocked up with other prisoners, uh, ISIS prisoners, uh, and he received lessons uh, on uh, from Islamic history and uh, the ideology of the Muslim ideology of the ISIS movement, he began to see the Shia not just as ethnic enemies, but as evil, as devils in some way. And that was an aha moment for him. He suddenly kind of clarified the nature of the struggle. And also justified their killing in a, well, if they're not really human, if they're agents of Satan, <clears throat> then you don't need to feel any kind of remorse uh, if you come across one in, in the dark of night and just murder him. Uh, you know, it's you're just helping to make the world safer and you're dispatching an evil being who will be treated in the afterlife and maybe redeemed in the afterlife, but you don't need to worry about it. So so if you implant on a struggle a religious template of cosmic war, it, it, 
it plays a very useful role in enabling people to fight, uh, especially viciously, in a way that most morally sensitive people would not be able to do. Uh, but as I said earlier, movements uh, uh, end, and visions of cosmic war also began to crumble. And they usually usually crumble um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, and the main one is that reality intercedes, <laughs> intercedes, and reality intercedes in several ways. One is the movement itself is begins to be seen as less pure. Uh, and one of the guys with whom I talked was just talking about the infighting within the group. He still believed in the grand vision, he said, but he hated ISIS, the movement, the organization. He said, because the leaders now are so corrupt. He said, they're only interested in their own power. They're only interested in their benefits for themselves. Uh, they, they reward their, their friends and they, they you know, cheat their, the ones that they don't support. Uh, and he himself had gotten into a number of fights with his own fellow ISIS soldiers. And he lifted up his shirt and showed me a scar where he had been stabbed uh, in the stomach by another ISIS militant in a fight that they had. And, <laughs> and I've heard the same thing with some of the, the people in the Khalistan movements, young Sikhs, who sometimes they're going to fight over girls, you know, they'll fight over women and one guy trying to steal the other one's girlfriend and, you know, people, guys especially, get into fights over all kinds of things. And, and it's kind of hard to keep an image of a disciplined movement. I mean, soldiers in an army are, are very disciplined part for that reason, because, you know, the whole point is to try to keep people focused on the mission and what they're doing and, uh, and obey the chain of command. But movements are usually not so well organized. They're more chaotic. They're often decentralized. This is true of ISIS, by the way, <clears throat> as well as the Khalistan movement, which is really de decentralized. It never had a unified uh, central organization. It just had different groups, and even those were divided among themselves. Also true of the moral movement. All three of these movements, they, were, they had trouble just keeping themselves together. But increasingly, you know, it, Sometimes these movements last over several years. And over several years, it's kind of hard to keep the fresh burst of energy, of enthusiasm for a great cause together when you see all this fighting, infighting that's going on around you. And also, if you just see the failures of the, of the organization of the movement and the loss of territory uh, and the loss of control as the government and the army and the police began to move in. And of course, this was true of ISIS is that increasingly the its control shrank until it diminished to virtually nothing. Now, it's possible for a movement to continue if it has a strong enough internal fight on just as, um, you know, a guerrilla movement. And there are some 30,000 ISIS fighters in, in, in Iraq, uh, even today. Uh, and they continue to create acts of, of violence uh, almost every day, their, their reports, not on the scale that they did before, and they don't hold territory the way they did before. So it's they're kind of out of our frame of reference. We don't think about it. We think that ISIS has been destroyed. It hasn't. I mean, there still is the remnants of a movement there. But for most of the people, and certainly the ones with whom I talked, the movement is over. And when I asked them, how did they, how did it end? They said, well, you know, when they, they realized that nothing was happening, that they, the promises were empty, the glory that they expected was, you know, just crumbling in front of their eyes. Uh, and they could no longer maintain faith in it. So maintaining faith in the, in in the movement, not just the cause, the, the struggle. One of the guys with whom I talked said, you know, he said, I, I still believe in, in the caliphate. I still believe in all these things. He said, if, uh, if there was another movement that started again, I would join it in a second. I said, I still believe that the Shia are, are agents of the devil and, and Americans. He said, I, I, would, I would easily kill one of them. So I was talking with him, in just the two of us together in the room, well, three of us, I'm my interpreter, 
uh, and I was using a pencil to take notes, and I realized that pencil could be used as a weapon. <laughs> so when you start talking about killing Americans, I got a... Oops, <laughs> started putting it in my pocket. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, oh, and he smiled. I said, oh, not you, Professor, not you. <laughs> Which I guess was comforting. Uh, but at least on a theoretical level, uh, you know, he still believed. It. I'm not sure how much he believed it, uh, but he said he did. Uh, it, it was it was a biting image. And, it, and it's like like a lot of religious images that, you know, people believe in weird stuff. Uh, and it's okay. You know, you can live next to somebody who, you know, believes in all kinds of demons and, you know, hidden warfare and stuff like that. And all that's fine as long as they're not trying to kill you, right? I mean, <laughs> you don't really care what they do or what they think uh, in their own imagination as long as they don't try to you know, unsettle the world around them. So that's that's kind of the way that his warfare had retreated to the mind and to, into a spiritual realm where it's a little safer and uh, not quite as dangerous. Yeah, quite really interesting. So coming to the second one, which is the moral movement of the Mindano Muslims. So take us through this journey also and what difference can we see in terms of how religious violence ends here? Well, again, this is a movement about um, trying to get uh, some dignity and a sense of empowerment uh, to an ethnic community that it felt uh, disenfranchised. I mean, at one time, Mindanao in southern Philippines was a part of a great Muslim kingdom. Uh, in some ways, it's more like Indonesia than the Philippines. If you look on a map, you know, it kind of moves in that direction. It wasn't until the colonialization of the Dutch and Indonesia and the Spanish and the Philippines that these uh, island groups of islands became solidified into imagined countries, imagined nations. Uh, so when that happened, and then the Muslim Mindanao was a part of a, a, a chain of islands that increasingly through after Spanish colonization had become Christian, uh, it was uh, it was not a comfortable fit, and so there has been uh, a movement for uh, a separate Muslim identity for for some time, um, and attempts by the Philippine government to try to settle the area, bring Christians from the north down into the area to resettle it. Now you know I'd say over half of Mindanao is Christian uh, at, from the northern part of, uh, of Luzon and other islands north of the Philippines. But the yearning, particularly in the strongly Muslim areas of the region, are, uh, to have our own identity, in some ways is just as strong, if not stronger. And uh, in the last well, 20 years or so, it's taken the form of guerrilla movements. Uh, some of them really quite vicious, and some like the Abu Sayyaf are terrorist movements. They're, um, they kidnap people, they, uh, they get ransom money, and if you don't pay the ransom, then they'll behead them. Um, in fact, that was going on when I went down to that region. Uh, they had, had just kidnapped three uh, foreigners, an American or Canadian, and they had uh, demanded the money and uh, and the country didn't pay it, and so they started chopping off their heads. Uh, and so I was the only American on the plane going down, <laughs> down to that region, and people would look at me and say, why are you here? <laughs> it's a good question, actually. Uh, my wife thought I was crazy. Uh, <laughs> so did many other people. But I had good contacts and a good support, and when I was there, I uh, stayed at a Roman Catholic university, and I, I actually lived with the priests, and we, it was fairly secure, and they took care of me. And they also put me in contact with the, uh, with the Muslim militants. And you say, why? You know, Catholic priests? Yeah, because this was the major university in the area, and a good number of the Muslim militant leadership had actually been students at that university and were friends with the priests as 
odd as that may sound. Because <laughs> the university actually was very, um, very much pledged to interfaith relations and, and it taught, taught Islam to the Muslim students. They were very conscious of, of trying to be show equal um, support to both their Christian and Muslim students. And, and so the, the Muslim students really had very positive feelings about the priests, which is an interesting relationship. <laughs> uh, but in any of it, it was through them that I was able to talk with a good number of the militant leaders and, and the group that I was uh, in contact with uh, had been quite militant and, and some factions of it still were engaged in uh, violent struggles with the Philippine uh, police and, and, and armed police. But others, particularly the ones that I was speaking with, were in the midst of negotiations with the government to try to find a way out. And that was one of the reasons I was interested in this movement, because they were by far of the three that I talked with the most successful in trying to provide some kind of identity uh, for Muslim Mindanao within the framework of the Philippines government that would um, make them, give them the sense that, that they had their own dignity, they had their own uh, power, they had their own um you know, focus as a, as a Muslim region within uh, Mindanao. And that, in fact, it came about uh, just the final uh, agreement was signed uh, just, uh, you know, shortly after I left. During the last time I was there, and all, all three movements was right before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic started, I planned to go back, but then suddenly we were all sitting at home uh, looking at our computer screens, <laughs> trying to figure out what we were going to do. And so I just wrote the book. I figured, well, this is, I'm, you know, not going anywhere. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to go back. I probably have enough material. And invariably, you know, we scholars collect way more material than we can possibly use for our book. So we might as well just sit down and write it. Uh, just collecting more material is often a way of postponing <laughs> the, the inevitable, which is sitting down and actually writing up what we're doing. And so I just sat down and, and wrote it up. And I, I wrote it up as um, kind of um, in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a conversational tone uh, as a way of, as, as a first draft. And then after I finished, I went back and read, I said, well, you know, this is, this is better than a more academic sounding book. Let's just keep it in, a, in the conversational thought. Tell stories and then draw your conclusions and don't try to get too theoretical. So that's what I did, and that's the book that I, I hope you enjoyed reading. Uh, and I've tried to make it uh, readable in that sense, uh, because that's it, it certainly ex expresses what I learned in a way that's that that's not book learning. It's you know learning from uh, from experience. So back to the uh, Philippine to Mindanao case. So the Mindanao case was interesting because it, it was it was the most successful of the. Of the three groups. It was a very elaborate, good explanation. Now, coming to the last one, that is the fight for Galistan. And this is um, in Punjab, the country where I'm residing in. And I think this is a very interesting case in the sense. So, can you take us through this? You know how I'm identifying now as a Punjabi. You know how we Punjabi, and it's like we're in our own country. And <laughs> And I think that was part of the whole, you know, the sick feeling that, uh, the, the, you know, the expression was, you know, at the time of partition, uh, the Muslims got Pakistan, the Hindus got Hindustan, and what did we six get? Nothing. So we deserve a Khalistan. Um, and and Bindurwala himself, uh, interesting, said he was never either for it or against it, uh, but he was for sick pride and uh and dignity, uh, and that's what he was fighting for. But it was a pretty, you know, vicious fight, uh, and a lot of the, a lot of people in it thought that they were they were struggling for something more than that. But it was interesting. A lot of the, uh, the particularly this, the foot soldiers, the people who joined it, there wasn't really a strong sense of clarity what they were fighting for. It was just the thing to do. I mean, whole generations of young people within villages, this was what they did. 
and they they felt that they were defending their faith. They felt it was under siege. Um, the, the strong police reaction to try to crush it really was counterproductive uh, because then it provided uh, an enemy to, that was visible to be seen. So in their minds, they were fighting the police because the police were trying to fight them. And so that became a self-perpetuating struggle. It didn't have to have a cause. It just was, that's what they were fighting for. But in a, but beyond there was a sense that they were, were defending their community. It was a fight for faith and, and community, a community of the degree to which they thought much about it. It was uh, a, a struggle to try to keep their, keep the Sikh community uh, it, together and keep and ennoble it, give it dignity, uh, respect to, uh, from this invasion uh, of the secular state. So that, that was, it, it had a purpose that was the purpose. Now the leadership, people like Zufferwald had a clear notion. And for some of them, Khalistan was a very real possibility of creating a, uh, a an a, an institution, a political framework that would protect the Sikh community. Uh, it, it wasn't ever, I think, for any of the people I talk with, a religious in any kind of narrow sense, uh, but that's really true of all three of these cases. Um, it, it was, but it was, but it was a uh, attempt to try to protect the Sikh community, uh, to give it a, and and to ennoble it, to give it an identity and a political power. So, you know, you, you might say, well, I mean, the whole idea of the creating a, a Punjabi language state, which is what was created earlier when Punjab and Haryana and Himachal Pradesh were created. Uh, and I happened to be in Chandigarh at the time. So I remember those days uh, that that was an earlier struggle for Sikh identity and power. And uh, you say, well, they called all the called all that, that creates a political party. But yes, all those things are true. But but they felt the need to uh, you know, create a, an actual Sikh state. Now, under the framework of the Indian structure where states are, are created on, primarily on a linguistic basis, not on religious uh, community basis, um, that's a more difficult, that would have been a difficult thing to have, have achieved. Uh, it, it would have, and moreover, uh, politically, it, it you know, if they started doing this the Sikhs, then your area of India and Northeast Territories will say, hey, what about us? We des- we deserve to be a separate. So, uh, certainly Kashmir would say, yes, oh, a great idea. Let's have separate. <laughs> so you can see the problem. Uh, you know, it was never really viable, I think, from uh, a central government point of view. They, they couldn't have done what the Philippines government did. But in any event, I'm not sure... There was never a sufficient unification among the different groups in the Punjab to to negotiate with any one of them. And when, when there was negotiation with uh, some groups, then um, like within the within the Golden Temple and, and uh, with Longawal, which was one leader of the movement, uh, there was a negotiation with the Indian government. But he, he was in the same compound with. Dinderwali, and the two of them were in internal dispute, <laughs> internal fight. And that, of course, was a, what a, a factor in leading up to the invasion of the Golden Temple, Operation Blue Star in 1984, which was a, a signal moment of the, of the whole struggle. And the moment that Indira Gandhi's uh, advisors uh, thought would destroy the movement, uh, would, and you know, if you're, ever, you should write a note to yourself. If you're ever in a situation like this where your military advisors say, "Well, the thing to do is to go invade the Golden Temple," don't listen to them. It's a, not a good idea uh, because it turned out to be a disaster in all kinds of ways. It didn't happen as quickly and smoothly as they had hoped, and more, uh, more tragically, of course, it led to the assassination of Indira Gandhi by her own bodyguards who previously had not shown any interest in or connection with Sikh nationalism, uh, but were certainly disturbed by the invasion of the Golden Temple, as were Sikhs around the world, for good reasons. I mean, 
imagine if a Catholic militant group had uh, holed up in the Vatican and the Italian government said, well, the only way to get rid of them is to militarily and attack the Vatican, <laughs> destroy parts of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, that would not go over very well with Catholics around the world. And the same was the true of the, of the uh, 1984 Operation Blue Star. So it's no surprise that the, really the more violent part of the, uh, the movement actually occurred after 1984. And a lot of the young people I talked with joined after 1984. It became a huge recruitment for uh, the the Khalistan movement. I always hesitate before using the word Khalistan movement because, as I say, it was never solely about that. And some groups really were not that interested in Khalistan. But I don't know what else to call it. A sick uprising is sometimes what I or, uh, uh, call it. But then even to use that phrase, it indicates it's more sick and more religious than simply a socio-political one. Uh, so the Punjab uprising of the 1980s, and call it that, <laughs> perhaps. So how did it come to an end? Well, as I said, these movements don't last forever, and they get exhausted in part through internal infighting, and there was plenty of that uh, in in this uprising and the Khalistan movement. Uh, and also the, uh, the increasing loss of support from the villagers themselves. Uh, and in the early years of the movement, the support from the villagers was absolutely crucial because as one of the uh, militants who had joined when he was like 15, uh, and now he was, you know, his uh, late 40s when I talked with him, uh, he said, you know, that we, would, we would go from one village to another in the dead of night, uh, and they would they would protect us and they would feed us and we'd have shelter. And uh, sometimes they would receive comfort from the young ladies there. You know, they would, that's how they moved around. Uh, but increasingly the villagers uh, stopped supporting them. Uh, there was, uh, 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 they felt like hunted dogs from the, uh, from the armed police, which increased, uh, particularly after uh, after the nineteen nineties, uh, when uh, there was a more a concentrated effort to try to destroy the movement. So all this led to the sense that the whole thing was crumbling, and it decided to go on for a long time. When you join when you're fifteen, and now it's some ten years later, <laughs> you're twenty five. You see the world differently. It, it's no longer a glorious cause that all the guys are doing, particularly if a lot of the guys are dead. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a different kind of experience. It becomes weary. You become literally war weary. Uh, and that's certainly what happened to the, the movement. It's no longer attractive to other young men. Why would you want to join something that's going to, that's going to lead to your death? You know, it, and besides, you're not, you're not getting the kind of support from the villages that you originally had. And that was really the, the crucial thing. That's what Zephyrball told me. I said, when did the movement end? He said, when the villages stopped supporting us. You know, it, it, it was, we knew it was over. Quite interesting, yeah. So I have, a, I have a last question. And I think it's more of an antithesis to the title of the book. But I think this is something which is very uh, important because I think you have also mentioned this one as you were speaking. You said that, you know, when... Uh, religious violence ends and it recedes back to the spiritual realm and into the realm of the mind. And somehow in certain historical instances, obviously the movement, I mean the violence and the movement might come to a halt. But then is there, a, is there a sense or is there a way of that violence erupting in a very different way? Or the in another way of putting the question might be, does religious violence ever ends? Well, in... All three of the cases, but especially the Iraq case with ISIS and the Punjab case, the uh, some of the social and economic factors that led to the unhappiness in the first place have not been resolved. Uh, I mean, in Iraq, the the uh, there's been no change in the government. There's been no change in in the acceptance of Sunni Arabs within uh, the political life of both uh, Iraq and Syria. 
uh, in Syria, even though the Sunni Arabs are in the majority, the government is led by Alawites, which is a kind of Shia uh, sect, uh, and and Christian Syrians. And so the Sunni Arabs feel, even though they're in the majority in the country, as second-class citizens. And then the same thing in, in Iraq. And this continues to be the case. Uh, so the ingredients are there. Uh, also, the areas that were affected by uh, the destruction of ISIS and by the internal warfare have not by any means been uh, fully rebuilt, in some cases not at all. I mean, most of the central part of Mosul is still in ruins. Uh, there have been some offense attempts to try to uh, try to uh, to clean it up and to, to repair the country, but often the money comes from uh, abroad from other other in, individuals, private money, not the United States, despite putting a lot of money into airfare, uh, air power to destroy those areas, uh, doesn't seem to have any interest in providing the funds to rebuild them. <clears throat> and the Shia government in Iraq is just happy that the fighting is over. They, they're not putting a lot of money into that either. Uh, and that's a real pity because <clears throat> there, if you go to the area near Mosul, you'll see these huge camps that the UN Refugee Agency has set up. Wonderful refugee camps. I mean, the UN High Commission for Refugees has done a wonderful job in, in creating these instant tent cities uh, for people to live that gives them remarkable amount of comfort and organization and stability. And, and they're just well-structured cities, really, uh, for hundreds of thousands of, of people. Uh, in a kind of square block, kind of like Chandigarh was designed when I lived there, in sectors, you know, in, in squares uh, where each one is self-contained. They have their own central kitchen and they have their own latrines and each tent is tall enough that you can live within it and they have electricity coming to it. You can watch television. I mean, you know, so, it, but still, it's a refugee camp and people can't live there forever. Uh, and particularly, they don't have... You know, means of work. Some people go out during the day and they work in the in the surrounding cities and then come back. But that's that's not satisfactory. So they're waiting for their cities to be rebuilt, and they're not being rebuilt at least quickly enough for people to be uh, for their lives to be uh, to, to, to be fashioned up again. So all of the ingredients are there for disaffection and to anger uh, that leads to. One move or the other. Maybe not ISIS. Maybe it'll take a different form. Uh, in, in the Punjab, um, there has been no. Well, actually, there were two things that have happened. One is a lot of the youth have turned to drugs. It is a horrible drug problem now in the rural area of the Punjab. Uh, and the other is that there is, you know, with the Kassan movement, uh, there was a, a, a movement, a political movement uh, that gave a sense of empowerment to the rural. A lot of them Jat Sikhs, the rural areas of the Punjab and, and UP in northern India, uh, against the, uh, the the laws that had been passed by the Indian Parliament, uh, and that Modi later rescinded, uh, in part because you know, and as you know, the Kisan movement was enormously powerful and uh, and I think ultimately effective, uh, and that uh, did in some ways that was a kind of resurrection of some of the political and economic elements of what had been in the original Khalistan movement back in the 1980s. So, I mean, I've exhausted all the questions that I came with, but uh, is there anything that you think that I might have missed from the book that you want to reiterate? Yeah. No, one thing we didn't discuss was the role of police and, and militant uh, resistance to these movements. And I, I, as I think I've indicated, that has, at least from the inside perspective, that was never that significant. Uh, you know, it played some role in showing the limits of what they could do. But uh, in many cases, particularly early on in a movement, it can be counterproductive uh, to come in like, you know, a gang fire and really uh, try to destroy a movement. Then that it turns the struggle into a fight between the police and the, and the militants. And, and that just takes on its own life. Um, 
it, it, obviously there's a role for police and, and military in showing the limits of what a movement can do. They can't just go out and kill people indiscriminately. Uh, and, that, and that's, that's important. Uh, but uh, if you think that all three of these movements were suppressed by military means, that's not the way people within the movement see it at all. Uh, their perspective is quite different. They see it as uh, internal crumbling uh, for other reasons, not because they were destroyed from outside. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Professor Mark, for being here at New Books Network. Now, if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your work and also specifically this book, uh, how do they reach out to you? Yeah, They can contact me uh, by Twitter or by uh, Jurgensmeyer, uh, at Jurgensmeyer, uh, or uh, the first part of my last name, Jurgens, J-U-E-R-G-E-N-S, at ucsb.edu. UC Santa Barbara is my uh, affiliation. So it's jurgens at ucsb.edu. And the book is University of California Press. Uh, and uh, it's not that expensive uh, in American dollars. I think it's $24. Uh, you know, convert that to rupees. It's not a hideous amount of money. Is there any project that you are currently working on or anything that you are, you know, going to produce something soon or, yeah, project, anything interesting coming up? interested in the topic and, of course, very interested in the rise of religious nationalism in the United States and Europe. Uh, and so right now my uh, uh, concern is, is more about that and to some extent the Ukraine war. So I continue to, to be pursuing all of these, uh, these topics. Thank you very much once again, Professor Mark. And I, I would like the listeners to encourage them to get the book and yeah, go through it. I think this is a very fascinating work and uh, the listeners um, will really enjoy this work. And I hope that this conversation has been a helpful one to the listeners to get a grasp of the uh, idea that has been discussed in this book. So thank you once again, Professor Mark, for being here. And yeah, take care. My pleasure. Thank you.